0: which includes radio programs and podcasts on SiriusXM, XM, as well as short-form content, TV shows, and movies with partners such as Peacock, Roku, Tubi, and Pluto TV. He's also a producer on projects such as Die Hard, Heart to Heart, Olympic Highlights, So Dumb It's Criminal, and tours such as Nick Cannon's Wild and Out Tour and Kevin Hart's most recent Reality Check Tour. Kalanahan was previously CEO of Kodak Films, which is where he first began working with Hart as he transitioned from Comedy Central specials to Concert Films' Laugh at My Pain and Let Me Explain, the latter of which earned more than $32 million at the box office. He sat down with me following Heartbeat Weekend in Las Vegas, where they hosted live recordings of Laugh Out Loud radio shows and filmed tapings for the revival of BET's Comic View Stand-Up Showcase series. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at dot com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode, as well as more county news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it!
1: How was Heartbeat Weekend? We just wrapped up, so I'm just, I'm recovering. (laughs) (laughs) I got back back home last night, I'm still recovering.
0: How how does Resorts World compare to the other resorts on the Strip these
1: days? It's been a while since I've been to Vegas. I mean, see, the thing is, Resorts World is is the newest property on the Strip. I mean, it's only been there like a year and a half, so everything's you know brand new. Um, it is a it's definitely a definition. There's three different hotels on the on the premises. So you have the the Hilton Hotel, the Conrad, and the Crockford's. Crockford's is the high end VIP suites. Then you have your food row, you have a mall, you have a theater, um, nightclub, day club. So it is, it is it it's it's very self contained. So that which is one of the reasons we picked the um, the venue because over four days you really didn't have to leave the property because everything you have was right there.
0: Right. Even though even though the world of heartbeat productions keeps getting bigger and bigger. That's that is true. <laughs> you guys filmed Reality Check, the new Peacock special there, as well as
1: the revived version of Comic View. How how does it feel to be bringing that back? I mean, I think that's coming out of the weekend, that's what I'm most excited about, because the response we received from the comedy community was like overwhelming. I mean, because see one of one of the challenges right now is like there's really no platform for comedians for stand-up for whether it be emerging comedians or even established comedians you know outside of you know you know a few specials on netflix but there's no platform to really help build and give exposure so we're really 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 excited about the relaunch of comic view and the fact that we were able to do it during our weekend was you know you know doubly um kind of had a double impact on it because we did it in the midst of this big event that we have you know thousands of people at Right. Of course, you know,
0: you just mentioned how there's a lack of opportunities for up and coming comedians to be showcased. And it it just shows how much has changed in just a few short years because you guys had Heart of the City not that long ago on Comedy Central, which, of course, is a different brand, has a Mm -hmm. different pedigree, different reputation from Comic View. What did you learn from doing that series that you're bringing
1: to this new version of Comic View? You know, one of the things we learned in doing Heart of the City is that there's a lot of talented comedians out there that just don't get the opportunity um, to kind of be showcased like on television, stuff like that. You see, the thing, so the thing about stand up comedians, you know, where they make their bread and bread, butter is touring. You know, it's touring in the clubs, theaters, but that's what makes their bread and butter. So being able to provide a platform to a much broader audience like a BT Comic book or even like Heart of the City it also helps these comedians in their careers in terms of getting them out there more and getting them being able to work more. So we, we just saw from the heart of the city, like there, there was a lot of talent out there and, and we've been trying to figure out, well, what can we do now to relaunch and uh, a a platform to give opportunity for up and coming comedians that are out there, that are not getting the media exposure that they should be getting.
0: Right. Because now, and you know, we're talking in the middle of 2023 and now, Especially the pandemic heightening everything when clubs closed down for a year, year and a half. It seems as though comedians are more focused on their screens than on being on stage. You know, they're focused on building a platform on TikTok or Instagram or whatever the next thing is. How do you how do you um, help nurture the talent so it's not just focused on how many how many views you can get on TikTok?
1: Um. The, okay, so that, that's that's a that's a good question. <laughs> it's a long I know we're we're both older, so it's, yeah. we remember what it was like. So here's the thing: if you're going to develop into a true stand-up comedian, you're not going to be able to do that on social media, TikTok, and stuff like that, because that's that's it's almost like a cheat, and it doesn't it doesn't give you the the platform to develop your stand-up. Now. With that said though, but TikTok and, and social are great marketing platforms, right? So you gotta you gotta thread the line in terms of your reliance on social. It's gotta be for marketing and building brand, but you still have to get out in the clubs and work. Mm-hmm. And there is a generation of comedians who with with an over dependence on, on social that are not necessarily putting in the work at the clubs to de- really develop the standard because what happens is on TikTok and stuff like that, that doesn't translate when you get to the stage, like the gags and the physical stuff like that. When you get on stage and you got a live audience, a lot of that stuff doesn't translate to, to the stand. So you have to kind of, you have to understand that and be able to work both, but understand that what you're doing on TikTok is not going to necessarily work on a, on a stage in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back with with Kev for at least a decade decade, and a,
0: almost decade and a half, right? Was was Laugh at My Pain the first project that you worked with him on?
1: No, he was seriously funny.
0: Okay. I still think of Laugh at My Pain as like the peak, peak that was, mm-hmm. And, but what made that also such a great peak was the fact that you know, you were code black at the time, not heartbeat, right. but you were able to convince him to, you know, break, not just from Comedy Central, but to put it in theaters yes what what was that conversation like that you had with kevin
1: back then so the process is this is kind of like well too see this is kind of i'm gonna go back to saying is that kevin started as a true stand-up like his stand-up 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 so then social media was just starting to come around so we said we started working in social media to build for marketing a brand but the conversation is that when we filmed Laugh of My Pain, we looked at it, it was like, oh wow, this, this seems big, you know, it was just a hunch that like it it, it it could be bigger than just putting it on, like say, Comedy Central somewhere. So what we did is we took it around in the studios and we shopped it out. And remember, Kevin hadn't had a big movie, so he wasn't Kevin Hart, the movie star yet, right? No, all he had was soul playing and that was that didn't do much. Way. Exactly. So we took it around in the studios and shopped it. Everybody said no. Actually, except for Lionsgate. Lionsgate said, OK, we think there's something here. But Lionsgate basically came back and said, OK, look, we're, we're testing three markets. We felt it was bigger than that. So what we did is um, I then went to AMC theaters when they had just launched their AMCI, which is an AMC independent program. And we do. I just talked to Carol. I said, look, let's just do this ourselves. Let's just take it to the theaters. Let's let's bypass studios agencies etc we're just going to do grassroots just like we're promoting the show and do this ourselves so that was that was really the thing that catapulted everything because we were so successful with that theatrical lease. but the thing is we were successful without any studio involvement we did it it was purely independent and we were able to go into the you know and, and book this in the theaters and do we had two million dollar opening weekend, 20,000 per screen average on 100 screens. That was the thing. And, that, and nobody could believe that we actually pulled that off. But it was just because we took our grassroots marketing to the consumer versus um, a lot of times the students, when they think about marketing, they they go wide and not understanding how to hit their target audience. But we we went to our target audience and we hit it and they showed up.
0: Now, was, was that the catalyst for sparking? A deeper conversation between you and Kevin in terms of not just doing the, all the stuff you were doing with Code Black, but then like bringing it all together and 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 making Heartbeat Productions a
1: Yeah, you know, the interesting, it wasn't it was kind of organic. It's not like we had a conversation, this let's do this. We just kept, we just kept doing stuff. And there was other stuff even outside comedy we were doing. We just kept doing stuff together. I was still under Code Black, but we were still we were just still doing stuff because after that release, I actually went and um, struck a deal at, at Lionsgate for Cold Black. And so I was still doing the Cold Black, but I was still doing Kevin's, you know, you know, his next releases, um, you know, for theatrical release and things like that for a stand-up. So I was still doing, but then relationship just kind of just organically grew. It wasn't necessarily like there was a, a sit-down strategy. Until we launched LOL is when we made it deliberate. I said, okay, look, I want to, we're going to put I'm going to kind of kind of part code black and, and, and launch this LOL streaming. That was the point where we kind of made a conscious decision to really kind of, you know, ramp it up from a, a right. partnership standpoint.
0: You know, as a comedy journalist, I, I have to admit, I was slightly skeptical of LOL when the, when the announcements first came out in 2017. And that comes largely in part because I had remembered talking with Marlon Wayans just a few years earlier when he tried to do something similar with what the yeah. funny and that, I remember that. And that didn't go anywhere. So what <laughs> what did you learn from from watching that from your perspective that helped make sure that LOL
1: really didn't well, fall the, under the same fate? The key thing, which we actually could have almost did, just to be honest with you. So we launched as and this is what happened. Lionsgate has had a, what they call a skinny bundle challenge. They had LOL and Tribeca uh, Tribeca, a short list. Film Festival had a channel and then they had um, Comic Con had a channel. So there's like four or five channels inside lines to get you trying to launch, but they were kind of leaning towards being a tech company. And what we found out was when we launched, we had a million downloads on our app in about 30, 40 days, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have enough content <laughs> to really keep them, right? <laughs> so that, that was the way. Oh, we don't have enough content, not for a subscription model. At the same time, while this was happening, we saw the what I call the rise of uh, Pluto and Zumo into the fast market. So we pivoted our we literally pivoted our strategy and scrapped the app and went to a fast model and got okay. in so the fast model right at the beginning. That's what that was a key point. from a business standpoint, where we said is when we change our model, to be fast and versus, versus us trying to be the platform. Let's take the LOL brand and, and go where consumers are, whether that'd be Pluto and Zumo and Tubi and all these places like that, Roku's let's go to where they're at Samsung. And that's where we kind of started. That's where we saw the success at and the growth for the, um, for the platform. And it sounds like Lionsgate
0: has been in your corner for quite a while. Yeah, I work with Lions. <laughs> I mean, they they were they were the, the only ones nibbling it at, at Laughing at Pain. But then you said you had a separate deal with them for Code Black, and exactly,
1: they were, yeah, they, were they were very they were very supportive in the process.
0: What was the biggest? I know that was like a big partnership. But then after that, I know you, you know you started filming showcases at Just for Laughs in Montreal, mm-hmm. and then a, at a certain point, you know Kevin got on Serious, and then now you've added additional series, whether it's Punky or Diallo, is it possible to say what was the most pivotal partnership in, in allowing things to grow as they have?
1: I would say the most pivotal partnership has been when we separated from Lionsgate, because what we did, we went back and asked, because it was a, it was a joint venture. We went back out and Kevin we bought the other percentage so we could have full control. I would say really got the most pivotal relationship is that, uh, Comcast, NBC Universal came in and gave us um, a seed investment and became a minority owner company. That that kind of kind of just really helped at that point because we were operating totally independently. So Comcast coming in as a as a partner and investor was kind of a pivotal point in the growth of the company.
0: Hearing that, it it certainly makes total sense that not only his new newest special reality check would be on Peacock, but Heart exactly. to Heart, the talk show, and. Him doing uh, these, uh, whether it's Olympics recaps or year-in-review yeah. stuff with Snoop Dogg or Kenan or And then there's an LOL channel ah. on, on Peacock's own fast, yeah.
1: That's, so that's the reason. So they're, 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 I know they're a partner of ours.
0: A lot of people who talk about entertainment right now, if they're not talking about the strikes, whether it's the writer's strike or maybe even while we're talking now, this, the actors might go on strike. If they're not talking about that, they're talking about the state of the comedy movie. And I wonder what you think of it. I mean, since you've been, you had successes with stuff with with Kevin, and I wonder how much the success of comedy movies at the cinema is really just tied to having a, a movie star.
1: I can, you could make that argument, but if you think about, okay, like, for example, on a, on a smaller scale, but it's, this is financially successful, so The Blackening came out three or four weeks ago, $5 right. million. It's at seventeen million. It's a comedy horror movie. There's no movie stars. So for that investment, that level of talent, that that IP is very successful on the theatrical level, especially especially in an environment right now where it's really it feels like only the big movies are working on a theatrical level. So there's great counter programming, and, and like I said, based on the on the financials on it, and it's it's you have to consider that a success. Right. I mean, Cocaine Bear. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was also a big success this year. I think, see, I think when you look at though, so when you look at like Cocaine Bears and you look at the black name, mm-hmm. it's the the IP. It wasn't. It's not necessarily the comedians or say, but the, there's a there's a theme. There's an IP that everybody's grabbing onto. The the theme of it is what is what's helping it. But they're, you know the, the the great concepts. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think you have to have a movie star for a successful comedy theatrical release movie. But you have to have a concept and you have to deliver on the promise that this is going to be funny and and, Mm -hmm. and be able to market it to the consumers to get them to come to the theaters. Because I think what happens now is that the theaters have to be feel like an experience because consumer has so many choices where they can sit at home. So if they feel like they can sit at home and watch it on Netflix or Disney or HBO or something like that. They're going to sit at home and watch it. They there have to be kind of like, okay, I need to go to the theater to see this for this experience,
0: right? Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes if if my fellow journalists are having the wrong conversation, even because they're they're wor- they're worried about whether movies can succeed at the box office, but they're neglecting the fact that all these movies are doing really well online. I you know we don't know what the numbers are for for Die Hard on on Roku. We don't we don't know. <laughs> We don't know how much money that made you or, or made them. Uh, we don't. The what's that new movie on Netflix? The Outlaws. Yeah, like, yeah.
1: I mean, Netflix might make a ton off of that. I don't know. It, seeing that, so th- that's the other challenge for like, let's say, media is that because the streamers don't share their numbers per se. Like, mm-hmm. you might they might say, hey, this is successful. Or, this debut number, but you don't know what the numbers are. Like, did, did fifty million people watch it, or you don't really because they don't they don't report those numbers.
0: Right. Do, do they keep them from you also? Or do you,
1: do you have a way of, of knowing? I mean, on some of some stuff we can't, so, but it's not on, the, it's not in an official capacity, but, you know, they'll give us some metrics, but they're not giving us, you know, they're not really giving us the, they're not going to tell us 50 million people watched it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, to be honest with you, not to switch gears, but that's, you know, that's one of the gripes with the why the WJ's on strike and things like that? It has to do with those kind of things,
0: right? Because the numbers are important for your residuals. Yes, to know.
1: exactly. <laughs> I
0: also brushed up on the Netflix docu series uh, from from Kevin. Uh, don't F this
1: up. Of which I was surprised you only you only make a brief, the briefest of cameos in that. I'm like, <laughs> look, I'm the guy. I've been with Kevin for over a decade, but I try to stay off camera as much as possible. I, I don't want to be the guy on camera. I don't want to be the guy. I'm the I'm the business, So. <laughs> if I, have to, I just, but I literally try to stay off the camera.
0: You did a great job i I go back with Dave Becky quite a while, and uh, he he was oh. on it more than I was expecting yeah. myself but i but as I watched it, and you know part of the you know there's a couple different subplots. one is is Kevin making mistakes, but the other is Kevin just being so busy, and I know that that falls a lot on you in terms of being the president of a heartbeat to kind of make sure that all of these projects flourish or can flourish as best they can. And I wonder if in the last few years you've been able to figure out a way to tell Kevin,
1: no. Well, actually that's not, hasn't really, (laughs) part of it is us also as a company, not is is kind of lessening our reliance on him from a project standpoint. So it's not just Kevin is, I think all of us collectively know that in order to build a company, we have to be, you know, there's only one Kevin Hart. So you can't, he can't do 20 things. Right. right. So it's more, it's more of a collective on us and Kevin to, to create a, like, you know, like Dave is a perfect example where producers on that, Kevin's but he's not doing anything. We have to do more of those kind of things.
0: Right. Or comic view where he's an EP, but it's, but it's Mike yeah.
1: Epps. Who's, who's there you next. go. That's exactly right. That's hundred percent right. And, and how many tapings did you, did you have? On uh, Comic Bee, we did four we did a four episodes, like a limited four episode series.
0: Okay. Are there gonna be more
1: more tapings for this revived season or are you gonna get yeah, everything I mean, out of those four tapings? Nothing's scheduled right now. It'll probably see sure it goes, but I you know if it does well, I'm sure they will come back and do more. All right.
0: Well, Jeff, it's it's great to uh, c- catch up with you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazel at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening.